Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Melbourne, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. We are about to truly become citizens of the fourth industrial revolution. Where we're going, we don't need roads. So what is the role of place and proximity in a world of IoT, AI, robotics, big data, analytics cloud, VR and AR? We have invited Jassel Shaw to provide a better understanding of the potentials of place and proximity in the future of innovation. As digital innovation lead at global engineering firm GHD of Engagement, Jassel has been described as a specialist generalist who looks for opportunities that can be co-created. Miles Davis, Autonomous Cars and the Adjacent Possible, a Florence Guild conversation with Jassel Shaw. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, um, for taking the time. It's, it's interesting there are people in this room that I haven't seen for 30 years. There's people I've worked with. There's people that I know through a few different circles. So it's crazy. I was saying before to a colleague that um, when you look out at a crowd and you know people, it does make you feel a little bit more nervous because you want to do the right thing by the time that, that we have together. And I've been to a few talks where people don't in, you know, interject with questions. So I have kind of put together a bit of a narrative for the next 20 minutes that if, if people are happy for us to sort of cover, these are the things that I was gonna cover. I was gonna cover Rebecca Solnit, the Industrial Revolution storytelling, Neri Oxman, not when she's connected to Brad Pitt, more her as MIT, Julie Wagner, conversions, collaboration, place proximity partnerships, Turkey, Florence, Silicon Valley, and of course, Miles, Davis, Jazz, and the adjacent possible. So it just gives you a bit of a teaser for um, my, my um, interest in being a generalist specialist is someone that is, and a meerkat, is that I really feel comfortable being able to be across lots of things in a, in a thinner way, but, um, and try and knit those, those sort of things together as we think about the, the role of place. So, and again, as I said, if people are uh, wanting to interject, that's absolutely fine. If we want to talk about it uh, at the end again, that's fine as well. But before I give an acknowledgement of country, I do want to just start with a quote from Rebecca Solnit. That thing we call place, it's the intersection of many changing forces passing through, whirling around, mixing, dissolving and exploding in a fixed location. So for us to think about place, it's to acknowledge the phenomena that is often treated separately, ecology, democracy, culture, storytelling, urban design, individuals and collective, they actually all coexist. They coexist geographically, spatially, and to understand we need to engage with braided narratives in a sui generis exploration. So it's that braided narrative tonight that I really want to explore. And so the first thing we need to do from the braided narrative as we sit here in 2018 is to acknowledge our Indigenous elders, our Wurundjeri people on the land on which we, we gather today and, and pay our respects to their, their elders past, present and future. 
In particular, when I think of our Indigenous elders, um, the physical place that we are on tonight, as um, we came, my daughter, who's here with me today, as we were coming up Elizabeth Street, because we've just come from NIDOC week, it reminded me of two quick things about the Indigenous place and why it's so important, even in this digital economy. Directly below exactly where we are, right along Elizabeth Street, from the Yarra that used to be bursting with eels, straight up Elizabeth Street is a creek called Williams Creek. It goes around the university. Actually, it, it floods our vice, the Vice-Chancellor of University's tennis court, goes up through up to Bulleen. What's really interesting about it is it's always been um, a food source for our Indigenous people. And before the land that we're on, that we've concreted over, that particular creek was such a life, a life source of, of, the, of these eels. But what I love is that those eels still to this very day transcend or go along that migratory path up from saltwater to, to freshwater to the bulleen and, and stay and breed and then come back every single year at a, an absolute um, ancient migratory path. So isn't that incredible that from an innovation perspective, but also from a place perspective. And if you ever want to hear them, along Bouverie Street, there are drains where you often um, can see them. And if you're ever at a certain time um, and you, you look into the Vice-Chancellor's tennis court, sometimes these little eels pop out to say hello. So that's one thing about place and our acknowledgement. And I take time to do that. The second from an indigenous and innovation perspective is uh, as I said, it reminded me of NIDOC. We're talking at the moment about in, in uh, our city being 5 million people, it's going to be growing, growing, and we need tech and we need um, systems to engage us in one of the things that we're doing is Melbourne Metro. So one I noticed as I came down um, the city square about a month ago, the Birkenwill statues disappeared. It often moves, seems to move often every couple of years. It's moved because Melbourne Metro is digging the ground and we're going to build the new, the new metro. I was reminded from an Indigenous um, colleague that Birkin Wills, who were explorers, were thinking about place and how they could derive value out of place, saw their weary demise when they ate um, uh, what were they called, Nardo sporocaps, which was this particular seed, and that's basically how they got poisoned and died. If they had actually stopped and listened and observed their Indigenous placemakers, the people that were travelling with them, they would have found out that the Nardo sporocaps need to be boiled so that the toxins inside are not, um, are not poisonous. So it's very interesting. Again, as we think about the future, we should always acknowledge the, uh, our original placemakers. And to finish that story, if you think a little bit of irony for Burke and Wills, Anyone that's got kids or anyone that likes the, the zoo, if you go up to Royal Park, there is a, what do you call it, a plinth? The, 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 um, uh, what's it? A plinth? A Obelisk. 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 It's right there yep. that is the day that Burke and Wills took off to the north to explore the great land. And on that particular, how ironic is this? Once a year, the Noro, the Nardo sporocaps blossom and all the flowers around the plinth are those as if to say, uh, 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 you should have listened to us. So I just bring that up as um, a story about our acknowledgement of, of our past as we think about the future. Clearly, I like stories. I like stories because they help me contextualise why we're here as humans and how they give us meaning. John Luke Goddard talks about reality is too complex, so stories help us give it meaning and form. The other thing I clearly like if I'm thinking about the past is I like the context of never forgetting history. 
and ensuring that when we think about history, it helps us contextualise the past. So I'm often reminded of a quote by Churchill that said, and I like to turn it on its head, which is so sort of disruptive innovation. If you have a quarrel with the past, you won't have the future. And I like to think if you do not continually contextualise and think about the past, what's been before us, or those that have thought about these things before, you won't actually be able to make sense of the digital economy and the digital disruption that's, that's with us. So clearly that's where we are at the moment in relation to the fourth industrial revolution that was mentioned before. And the future that is now is something that we have to think about. We all know in Melbourne and we can read about it and we can listen, listen and um, see it in real time is that the rate of change and the pace of change has never been before. Uh, we can, uh, I'm sure we've heard quotes from people such as Klaus Schwab, who's the founder of the World Economic Forum, who puts it in a very nice vignette that says, we stand on the brink of a technological revolution that will fundamentally alter the way we live, work and relate to one another. Its scale, its pace, scope and complexity will be like nothing that we've, we've um, we've experienced before. So we all know that, especially living in Melbourne and being um, having so much uh, access to knowledge and having the data in front of us, those inputs, zero cost of computing, different business models, the gig economy. We know that four generations are all working under the same um, organisational uh, roofs. We know that migration is coming to the city. We know that the rural and the, and the uh, city divide is something that we need to tackle. We know that um, millennials will be taking, taking over as the, as the bulk of people that will be working in our organisations. We know that 50% of Forbes 500 uh, top companies have disappeared since 2000. If there's anyone here from Committee for Melbourne, uh, Clive or the uh, Committee for Melbourne have done a lot of research on this and have done some um, fantastic statistics to help us contextualise that rate of pace and that rate of change. If we think, and all of us here, uh, besides Maya perhaps, were born into, have been here since 2000, but who would have thought since 2000 that we would have experienced September 11th, Amazon, WikiLeaks, uh, Fukushima, the iPhone, Facebook, uh, Instagram, the Arab Spring, Brexit, or even Trump. These are things that are very much part of our normal uh, changes, normal paces, normal, etc. So I bring up all that and we talk very much about the future being already here, not, not as evenly distributed a la Gibson. We talk about tech, we talk about the, uh, I call it the alphabet, alphabet um, world that we live in. Why I say that is it's just remembering AI, VR, IoT, um, machine learning, cyber, uh, um, uh, Bitcoin, blockchain. It seems to be the pace, pace, pace. So all well and good. It is the world that we know. But is there and should there and what is the role of place? Physical place, non-digital, analog. And that's what's fantastic about Florence Guild is that I was told no PowerPoints, this is an analog conversation, this is not digital. And even though my job during my day is digital innovation, I, I have to always, I, like, I need physical. But what is the role of place um, in particular in this non-digital, um, this technical world that we live in? Well, for me, absolutely. Place, it's something I'm 
passionate about. It's something I think about all the time. It's why I, I wanna unpack why places such as Florence Guild work, why some cities are thriving, why some cities are not surviving, etc. Place needs a place. Place also needs a focus in the conversation. It cannot become invisible. Um, I love a book that I used to read to the kids, which is the Lorax that always used to say, I speak for the trees because the trees has, have no voice or no tongue. And I think place is starting to be seen as, yeah, yeah, it's there, but it's not heart and center of the conversation. How are we going to change that? How are we going to make sure that place is part of the focus of this conversation? And to be honest, I was thinking about this when um, I was preparing for the talk. I think a lot of the challenge for place, for physical, is because technology and digital and shiny and new and all, all the new gadgets and wizardry and maybe alchemy and Silicon Valley and grey t-shirted 23-year-olds, it takes such a dominant um, part of our conversation that we forget about place and what we need to do is get place as the soprano, the prima donna, the centre stage of this conversation and not just this thing that's the, um, is the understudy. And so one way that, um, and I knew, see, I'm going to bring up Neri Oxman and Julie Wagner, promised you I would. Um, one way that I think that we can focus place into this conversation is to actually reflect that the times that we are in are what Neri Oxman calls the age of entanglement and what Julie Wagner calls the age of convergence and the age of collaboration. So does everyone know Neri, Neri Oxman? So she, uh, the reason I joked about Brad Pitt was because um, at the moment, you know, is Brad Pitt dating um, whoever he used to date? Have they got remarried or um, has um, Neri Oxman turned up on the scene? And Neri Oxman is an incredible uh, scholar uh, from MIT Media Lab and writes uh, about this concept of the age of entanglement. So what does she mean? I'll give you a little, actually I won't give you a quote, of knowing our kind of generation here, which is maybe millennials, maybe Gen X, doesn't matter, do labels matter? But what she talks about when she mentions the age of entanglement, if we think about what a lot, how a lot of us gained our knowledge or how we studied, so it'd be very interesting when we get to conversations, if you wanted to, when you introduce yourself, talk about who you are, but what's one of the places that mean so much to you, so when I studied at the University of Melbourne, which seemed to be where I spent most of my life, the Bailey Library was really a place for me that meant a lot. Still smells the same way if any of you know the Bailey Library. But Neri's talking about age of entanglement. Before that was the age of containment. How I learnt knowledge as a kid was mum and dad had um, the yellow National Geographics that came in in the post and uh, we had Another thing that I inherited recently from uh, my um, late mother-in-law, which was a full set, I think they're called the Life, Time Life series, Little Square. Turns out there's 19 in the full series and we've got them all at home and there was no way I was sending them off to the um, op shop. And in that, that was basically how we got our knowledge. Our knowledge was, and I've picked these up, our knowledge was siloed, our knowledge was in some ways dusty, our knowledge was confined. Um, in particular in the Time Life series, it's fascinating how it's the engineer and the mathematician, the scientist, giant molecules, big ships, 
I don't know what happened to the small molecules. They didn't get a tome and neither did small ships, but basically we've got the series. What's interesting about them, and I nearly brought one today because um, you mentioned I could bring one, one prop, and I, but I had too many things to carry. I was going to bring the one called The Mind because in The Mind, uh, published in 1952, it talks about the computer and uh, it says that the computer will only be a thing that that helps educate, but it will never store language, it will never sh share knowledge, and it will never um, respond to knowledge, and that's 1952. So how much has our world changed from this era of containment and an era of siloed to this era of entanglement? And the last sort of tone that how I learned from university to being at home with the National Geographic was, of course, the Encyclopedia of Britannica, the big one. And this is where Neri sums it up so beautifully. She says, to every age, a relic, a loom, an automobile, the PC, a 3D printer. The encyclopedia was its period signpost. It catalogued and concretized the boundaries between disciplines which emerged from the long 18th century of the entitlement. For the next quarter of the millennium, we remained indoctrinated to the shibboleths of this relic. We operated with discrete silos of thought. But at the dawn of this new millennium, the, suddenly we were yanked out of Aristotle's shadow and into this age of entanglement. And that's this age that we're in. And this is the age that place means so, so much and needs to. And I'll unpack that in the next little five minutes and then we'll go to questions. So it's clearly important. So I need to turn to Julie Wagner. Any of you know Julie who's been at, brilliant, of course, Julian, uh, from the Brookings Institution? Uh, they have done a lot of work on auditing place, understanding what does place mean for the innovation economy. And they are looking at place as the geographic incubator of our time, especially of the digital economy. What they look at is they look at two things. One is about the concept of convergence and the concept of collaboration. So what we mean by convergence, especially because of the digital economy, is so many of those disciplines that we were brought up with that were siloed have converged due to technology, but also they require collaboration in order to be able to decipher and to understand and to take extract value from. So let's think in Melbourne because we are here in Melbourne. The bionic eye, the bionic ear, etc., are classic examples of how convergence and collaboration have helped those two innovations create the value that they have. And something I didn't talk about because I just assume that um, we all have our own definitions of innovation. But something that we all are uh, across is actually I should uh, maybe it's time to ask people their own definitions of what innovation actually actually means. Does anyone want to share their thought of the definition? And this is not you know Turnbull and his ideas boom, um, or you know put a coffee shop in the side of a co-working space and you've got an innovation district. Clearly, that is not the case, and that is not what Florence Guild is about. If not, I'll chortle through so we've got time. So the. I usually say it in talks, is the begin of how I think about the definition of innovation is really simple. It's fresh thinking that creates value. Simple as that. How do you get fresh thinking? You get diverse people together. You get them together for this, not the serendipitous bump only, but you get them together so that they can actually share complex problems. They can eyeball each other. They can trust each other. They can share tacit, tacit information, etc. 
that create value. Fresh thinking that creates value. Value can be whatever we need to ascribe it to meaning. It could mean new jobs, new sectors, new economies, etc. So I've got to think about what the title of this was, Miles Davis, Autonomous Cars and Adjacent Possible. I promise they will come into the conversation. So it is a good segue to talk about the autonomous cars. It's something that we read about constantly. We're worried about them, them um, running into grannies or whether machine learning thinks that the autonomous car, that the child is actually a plastic bag, but it's actually... But I just want to think about it in the context of place. The autonomous cars are at least 14 different, very discrete disciplines coming together. They could not, we wouldn't have this conversation around autonomous cars if it wasn't for places like Silicon Valley and Tel Aviv and place-based economies that are ensuring that these different disciplines and anyone that's worked at a university will know. That's why I wore my skirt today, which has cats on it. Um, universities are very good at um, hurting cats. Uh, hurting, hurting uh, academics from dis different disciplines. It's really, really difficult to get people that are brilliant in their disciplines to merge, to see the, the rewards in that. But things such as the autonomous cars are exemplar examples of the era of entanglement, the era of convergence, the era of collaboration. Sure, the, the um, gas-powered car is already an example of convergence. You've got mechanical, chemical and electrical engineers coming together. But I'm talking about something even more. So I'm talking about autonomous cars when we're thinking about that on steroids. We're talking about 14 plus plus disciplines. We're talking about powered not only by researchers in mechanical, electrical, chemical, material science, software, um, robotics, AI, ethics, philosophy, chemistry. Against that, we're also powering that with car companies that are existing like uh, GM, Ford and Volkswagen, but also non-car companies that are merging in this space, Tesla, Uber, um, Waymo, etc. So this is why place matters for autonomous cars, place matters for the concept of convergence and collaboration. And those of you that, um, so when I mentioned Julie Wagner and I mentioned the research that they are doing uh, at the Brookings Institution, they talk very much about proximity. And so it's not just about us having place. These ideas are so complex that they need the tacit, they need the eyeballing, they need the trust. They need the serendipitous bump encounter, but they also need the meerkats. They need the, the people that are looking out for the opportunities to draw these people out. And we see that very, very much um, in the autonomous cars, but in, in that space. Um, the Brookings, if I find my statistics, talk about the knowledge sector has said that it needs approximately a 1.6 kilometer radius that is walkable, that is sociable, that allows for people to come together. Places that are not doing that well are changing and retrofitting. So some of you um, might be aware of Research Park, Triangle Park in North Raleigh, Durham in North Carolina, the bastion in the 50s of innovation, siloed, non-walkable, could only get there in a car. They are even looking to um, uh, where Harvard and Harvard and MIT, the, I can't think what the square's called, the whole concept of innovation in that space. They're looking to what's making those spaces work and are retrofitting themselves. 
Brookings Institution talk about the economic, the social, the networking, the physical assets that do that. But because we are in Florence Guild, I just want to, even though we're talking about digital and we're talking about now, I think we cannot um, forget, and this is the history in me, that it's all well and good that place for autonomous cars or for many others enables proximity, enables us to have um, co collaboration, it enables the adjacent possible, which I'll touch on in a second, but it is actually something that's not new to our DNA. What's new is that we have this technical surge and this new convergence, but it isn't new. And I can think of many, many uh, examples, and since time immemorial, that we have, as humans, by DNA, our, our, our nature is to collaborate, it is to come together. So, anyone been to Turkey? To the first civilization that has been discovered, uh, 12, the first civilization in, in the sense of not indigenous, but uh, 10,000, BC, so 12,000 years ago, Gobleki Tekke in southeast Turkey is a place that archaeologists have now discovered is where people came together and even back then they were creating green roofs. They were creating technologies to help themselves stay cool. They were creating market economies and they were creating engineering feats that we are only now kind of celebrating, especially in the city of Melbourne. It's like big rah-rah for green roofs and that we're suddenly working it all out. It's like, go to Southeast uh, Turkey. It's been a 12,000 year journey and already something that's been happening. Um, Menlo uh, Edison uh, in the Menlo Ideas Factory in San Francisco. Everyone sees Edison as this, the creator of the light bulb, the creator of the phonograph, um, the father of 4,000 patents. What we know about most patents in the world that they don't have a solo founder. Most of the work that Men, um, Edison created in the Ideas Factory in Menlo Park in, San, in California was not done on his own. He did that in collaboration, in close proximity with not just scientists, with engineers, with others that were thinking differently and challenging him. I was challenged um, by a couple of uh, young founders at a, a function last year about even the garage, the Silicon Valley of um, um, Steve Jobs and uh, Steve Wozniak. And in particular about, I challenged the idea that, that, uh, that place is important and, and this particular founder said, well, you think about Steve Wozniak and you think about he had his garage in wherever it was in San Francisco. And I said, I, I agree with you that he was a very um, uh, introverted or uh, a scientist that stayed to himself and he worked in that garage. But what sometimes we forget was that every single Friday night he came out of the garage and went to the Silicon, no, the, what was it called? The, the Ber Berkeley or Stanford Codus Club. And he would collaborate with other people and test his ideas and then would go, rightly so, back to his, his garage and, and do the thing that he was proud about. So, we still need, is that a question? Stretch. Okay, I promise. Have some cheese. Cheese, please. Um, he, you know, it, it's something that, that to me is very much about um, even places like Silicon Valley they require. And they will need, um, when I mentioned about retrofitting and I mentioned when others that have got, have got the, the gear and they've got the talent and they've got it working, we need to understand that they are not being, uh, um, uh, not recalcitrant, they're not being uh, lazy at thinking that they need to keep sharpening that saw. We've seen it in places such as Detroit, 
with the move to a monoculture when Detroit and cars basically meant we had a city of um, middle class professionals. We lost the creative class there. We lost those that were diverse to the innovation game and Detroit sort of had its demise. So it's so important, this concept of diversity. It's really important that even in the tech Silicon Valley, gray t-shirt, 23 year old Mark Zuckerberg land that we have diversity and they are clearly um, uh, thinking about that. Next month, I understand from um, Florence Guild that you have a talk with um, Jamie from Blockchain. And I know one of his colleagues who I think spoke uh, last year, Adam from MyVote. Now, MyVote is a technology and Jamie is a technology on blockchain and voting and Horizon State. Clearly, one might say, why do they need physical proximity? Why do they care about the place? And I did text J um, Adam a couple of days ago to say, oh, please, please break my, my value proposition that I think that you've needed physical proximity in place to get my vote to where it is. He's just come back from a week in the US where they've been with um, uh, the NRA and working with Ted Turner and their campaign to basically build a platform in the US. And he goes to, um, he goes to I think, India next week to talk to 45,000 um, uh, Indian citizens about running Indian uh, citizens through my vote in order to sort of disrupt the democracy, democracy in inverted commas here for the podcast, uh, democracy as we know it. And I said to him, has place meant something to you and, and physical proximity? He said, Jamie and I could not have got Horizon State and my vote to where it was if we did not have physical, weekly, daily um, conversations. Uh, he could not have being able to talk with the um, people that are running, uh, I don't know what they call it in the US, but basically where you can wear your gun on the outside. Um, so, you know, what's it called? Open carry, Open carry laws. Mm -hmm. And talk with those about how my vote could work in that system to disrupt the uh, democracy as it is, if it wasn't that he physically got on that plane and physically went and talked to those people and physically go. So as much as we talk about technology and digital, we need to remember that. Um, we talked about Menlo. Of course, we need to say Florence Guild. We have to think about Renaissance Italy. We have to think about the role of, of the Florence Guilds in the height of Renaissance Italy. Am I correct to say they were the first co-working spaces? They might not have had, they, yes, absolutely. What also was wonderful, they were very much what's happening in Silicon Valley. They were fostering competition and collaboration at the same time before the concept of co-opetition was even coined by the Berkeley, Stanford, Harvard, MIT professor, little skinny book, 120 pages. They were thinking about this stuff. They were also thinking about the importance of mentors. They were thinking about the importance of, um, of diversity of, of, of thinkers and founders. So Michelangelo, Bruno Leschke, you name it, are people that had the engineering and they had the arts and they had storytelling down um, to a T. So that's very much ver that we've got to always think about. It's not just about now that we've suddenly worked it all out. It's very much about our past. I am going to stop in a minute because I am super, super conscious of the time. Um, I haven't spoken about the adjacent possible. And I haven't spoken about Miles because I wanted to put, put Miles at the very, at the very end. Um, and I was going to talk about Carlton Connect as another example in Melbourne, but you know, it's here and we can talk about that at another time. 
We've talked about tacit, we've talked about trust. Why? Because ideas move imperfectly across space. Ed Glaser, it is so true. We've talked about the importance of amenity and right and density and compactability and walkability. What's important is that proximity in place does this other really, really special thing, and that's that it fosters and allows for the adjacent possible, the edge effect. And because I do like musicians and I like jazz, but I like all types, um, rather than me explain what the adjacent possible means and the edge effect, if I just share with you this quote from Yo-Yo Ma, who's a cellist and a philanthropist, and he summarises what molecular bi biologists and evolutionary biologists are talking about when they talk about the adjacent possible. And he says it in a beautiful way. He says, as we see in ecology, in ecology, there are necessary edges. The edge effect in ecology occurs at two ecosystems. For example, the savannah and the forest when they meet. As when the savannah and the forest meet, there is the least density, but the greatest diversity of life form. Each living thing can draw from the others. And this is where the new life form starts to emerge. And for those, if anyone works in ecology or in that space, and I've talked to scientists at the university and they've told me about places in the world where savannas meet forests or deserts meet different ecosystems, they will find the most diverse, diverse and most proliferation of new life forms. So take that to the concept of innovation in an innovation district, a place. Artists and engineers meeting biologists to scientists, the whole, like, uh, uh, the autonomous cars is a classic example. We've got to create places for that sweet spot of innovation. We've got to create um, places like the Menlo um, Ideas uh, Factory so that people can come together. We did this I feel really proudly at Carlton Connect when I worked there, we were really, really strict about the type of tenants that came and spent time. We were very open about anyone that wanted to engage, but we wanted to make sure that we had tenants that spent their days in that building that were at the adjacent possible, that were different disciplines. So we had lots of different companies that would say, can we come and um, rent? And we would look and say, well, actually, for a multinational to come and take the space of the City of Melbourne's artist studio would mean that we would not have that diversity and that adjacent edge. So we'd set up this ecosystem a bit like nature where we had multinationals, we had startups in an accelerator, we had an artist studio, we had a PhD college, we had a research lab, we had the public doing hackathons and thought labs and things like tonight. And we had, a, we had a narrative that explained they had permission to, to not only play at the edge or, or merge within the edge, but to see how important that edge was for innovation. And I haven't really got time to talk about it. We've got so many examples of things that happened in that brew, in that real magical alchemy of seeing at the edge. And I'll give you just one example before I turn to Miles and then I'll stop. Um, uh, people... Uh, I can't think what the, what the name of the professor in the UBC says in University of British Columbia, but he says, artists help people understand the science. And when we think about things like climate change, when you talk to kids about climate change and you say, well, you know, the Earth's going to be 4% warmer, it's whether they're children or adults, it's really hard to kind of actually understand what that really means because some of you are rugged up and I've got to single it on tonight and uh, four degrees, does it really, really matter? 
So inside this space, we had a grant from the City of Melbourne and we had a, a dramaturg, a screenwriter and another artist, artist in the artist sense of the word, and they were given a grant to spend three months inside our lab with us. And they, the thing that, why they got their money, they had to create an artistic expression of something scientific that was happening, brewing at, at Carlton Connect to help people understand it. And so they worked with um, scientists from the PhD college and others that were in the building about climate change. And what they did was they took all the hard science and all the data and the Bureau of Meteorology and all the work and they thought, how are we going to make people actually understand the science? What's the one thing that has always happened in life, in the life that we've known and the life before us? We've always had boy bands. <laughs> Who would have thought? We've had the Beatles. We've had, um, who's, who's the ones, the one's got long hair now and he went out with Taylor Swift. We've had uh, first, uh, first Direction. Oh my God, my daughter will be so embarrassed. One direction, I called it first direction. <laughs> We've had boy bands for as long as time memorial. So what's the one thing that we could think about? We could think about the death of the boy band. So what they did, like CSI, they got, took all the scenarios and they created a script. And if any of you have seen um, Gwyneth Paltrow in Sliding Doors, they created four scenarios around the death of this boy band member, like a murder CSI script but they ran the script through the four scenarios of what would our world look like, our city, if it was a city of transformation, a city that had turned certain levers to do with climate change up and down and things like um, Republican and all those votes, that, uh, sorry, if we we're gonna be a Republic was separate. This was all about scientific. So one was the scenario of what would our world look like if we'd become a city of transformation. One was the murder of the boy band member <coughs> through the lens of the city of stagnation. One was the lens of, uh, of status quo, and I can't remember what the fourth one was, but you get the point about the scenarios. And then they had actors from the VCA come and uh, act out the, just one of the scenes of the script that they wrote. But what it made people at the end realise was it became destinational rather than uh, uh, binary or do you believe in climate change or not, or if we do only that or that but it helped people unpack the science. It helped people understand complexity and convergence. And out of that came a couple of other things. So I use that as an example of how important diversity is, how not only having scientists together, but there are artists, there are artists in, in this room today, how incredibly important the role of the artists play in this space as well. So that's a great way to finish with Miles Davis and uh, being an artist in his own right, and uh, about what has Miles Davis got to do with the adjacent possible and, and innovation at all. Well, he was clearly an innovative musician of his time, of course, and the work that we enjoy today. But when I had a look at, um, with his autobiography, or the work that he talks about um, in relation to the most important influences on his life. Does anyone want to hazard a guess of who he says, not on his life, sorry, on his musical composition. So the innovation, the fresh thinking, the different ways that his compositions were created. Who were what he says were some of the most important influences? <laughs> wasn't his music teacher and it wasn't his dad or his mum. It was uh, Orson Welles because he was so inspired by how Orson Welles created dramatic suspense 
and mise-en-scene in the way he created his vignettes for film. And the second was Frank Sinatra because he was taken back by how Frank would interpret music and take his own spin in relation to um, the, the lyrics and his performance style. So I bring those up to sort of um, make us all reflect on when we think about innovation and we often gravitate to like to like, uh, it's really important for us, especially as we're trying to look at the adjacent possible, is that we find people that don't think like us or challenge us, that we have those diverse players um, in our world. This, and it's not just kids that do that for us, it's important that we have others. But the other thing about jazz and why um, I wanted to raise it up and raise it with this innovation conversation is because we've got so much to learn from jazz and from music, but jazz in particular, um, about how to survive, survive on stage, but thrive when you know that change is coming. Because the one thing about jazz, if you think about it, is that you need to be the very best at your game, but you need to know and you will know that things are changing and you need to be receptive to change and be excited by the change. You still have your baseline. You still need to make sure that you hit the right notes and that you play the very best you can. But change is anticipated. And so change is something that you're excited about and that you are, you are productively and proactively being part of. It's about also knowing that the whole is greater than the sums. And that I think is a great way um, to finish this sort of vignette because what is clear is that no engineer or no scientist or no lawyer is going to solve the problems that we have in our city or our society without collaboration and convergence. We need to know that the whole is greater than, uh, sorry, we, our part means that the whole the sum is greater than the parts. Now I'm really confusing myself. It's really, really important for us to sort of understand that in, in who we are and how we play a part in that. So if I just check through the things that I promised you that I would talk about, industrial revolution, storytelling, um, Neri Oxman, Julie Wagner, convergence, collaboration, place, proximity, partnerships, um, autonomous cars, Turkey, Florence, Silicon Valley, gray t-shirts, Miles, Davis, Jazz and the adjacent possible. So I suppose in finishing, I just want to say from my perspective, it came up in the topic. What is something that's sincerely possible? I hope that what's sincerely possible is that we keep analog in the digital conversation, the digital economy. It's so important that we keep analog, we keep the non-tech. We keep place as a key actor, a soprano or the jazz musician, um, so that our generation and what we leave behind will be remembered. I am an alum from Melbourne Uni and I worked there for so many years and I didn't until recently really think about the motto and I was someone who might be able to say it in Latin, but basically the motto says that we need to be, um, to grow in the, the esteem of our future generations. We want to do things now that not only the kids that are here, but our future generations will say, you know what, you actually did the best you can in an environment that was fast and changing and complex and converging and, and that, but you did try your best. So I think we need to remember that. We need to think about Margaret Mead, who says, never ever doubt the group of thoughtful, committed people will change the world because that's all we have. It's a beautiful saying, what she says. Sometimes people are a bit, um, is it too highbrow? So I like to bring it back down to Dolly Parton because what Dolly says is know your strengths and do them on purpose. 
and I'm really proud of being in this city and I think we know our strengths as a city. We're very proud, we hear about livability and lovability and we can question that till the days come home, till the cows come home and the days are long. But we know that our strength is we have an amazing place. It's got eels underneath it and it's got Birkenwald statues that disappear from time to time. We have bad traffic from time to time, but we have people and it's our people that make this place. And I think if we remember that it's the people like Dolly that are our strengths and we take our people and we do it on purpose, then place, physical place becomes the crucible of the opportunity. It is place that will ensure the equitable, social, physical, so, um, economic and cultural prosperity will be created, will be protected, will be celebrated and shared in this place for us and others via prosperity, via knowledge, via pioneering um, adventures and of course storytelling and jazz. Let's open up for a conversation. <laughs> Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.